back in the fur shed for episode 48 of the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood. Thank you for tuning in. You can find more about me at trappingtoday.com. And the Trapping Today podcast is sponsored by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z, B-R-O-S.com. Those guys have a full line of trapping supplies. Check them out. Kyle and Kellen Cots. They've got trapping videos for just about any species you want to target. Uh, books, all kinds of information there. They got lures, whatever you need, and, and a very good online supply catalog. Uh, they are have have real good service, fast shipping, and lots of of different options. They also have um, a rewards program now, where you order and you earn points for every dollar you spend there. So check them out. And I am going to do a giveaway tonight. I'm going to announce a giveaway tonight of a free t-shirt. I have some Cots Brothers Lures Got Skunked t-shirts. It's a funny little shirt. It's got a old-timer trapper that uh, got sprayed by a skunk, and it's got CotsBros.com on the bottom of it. Real funny shirt. They're high-quality t-shirt. I've got them in three sizes, and I am going to do a giveaway, but you have to do something to be eligible. So what I'd like you to do is if you can leave a review of the podcast on iTunes and uh, you can just send me an email at jrodwood at gmail.com jrodwood at gmail.com and just let me know I'll take a take a little peek at your review and uh, anybody that submits a review between now and uh, this time next week, I will put your names in a hat and uh, pick one out, and I'll con- be contacting you for your mailing address, and I'll ship that out to you free of charge, um, free shipping and everything else. So anyway, all you got to do is leave a review. Uh, I think it would be great to get some more iTunes reviews, get um, more attention on the podcast so more people can find out about it. I think uh, that'd be good for all of us in the trapping world. And uh, that being said, speaking of iTunes, speaking of trapping podcast, it's a small world, not a lot of podcasts out there for trappers, uh, but there are a few new ones. And I just found out, Chris Pope, I wish you would have emailed me so I could have announced this earlier, but Chris Pope of CoyoteTrappingSchool.com has started a podcast. He started it in August, um, the end of August. Got, I think, a dozen episodes out, and I just listened to the first one uh, tonight. And awesome job, Chris. Um, I'm excited to to listen more, and it's great to see more Trapping Podcasts. Uh, there's also uh, Trapping Inc. Scuttlebutt. Um, and then the, the one that's been around forever, Clint Locklear's uh, Trapping Radio. So uh, check Chris out, um, give him a few words of encouragement, and uh, he is he is a real wealth of information, real enthusiastic guy, very helpful, and uh, just always teaching teaching people about trapping. So uh, that is that is absolutely um, exciting to hear another podcast coming on the air. All right, so a little bit about what's going on with me. I've got a bunch of small topics to touch on tonight. Um, I am overextended, so <laughs> it's been a, it's been pretty crazy coming into trapping season because I've kind of overcommitted to uh, things in life. I don't know if you've ever done that. Uh, as you get more and more responsibilities, I think it's it's always a good thing to say yes um, 
especially when you're young and growing and open to new business opportunities and career opportunities. Uh, but you do get to a certain point where you can only say yes to so many things. And I'm finding myself uh, every day before and after work, in between family time, uh, just pushing, pushing to get things done. Uh, all weekend, starting Friday afternoon all the way through to Sunday night, I'm just steady. If it's daylight, I'm outside working on the farm and working on other things. And uh, and then when I'm inside, I'm working on writing projects and, and just everything it's been a little crazy. So um, <clears throat> I found out that I, I kind of come to the realization that I'm a little overextended. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's better than sitting out in, on the couch and watching TV. Um, but you got to think, you know, make you think a little bit about what you spend your time on. And one of my priorities to spend more time on is trapping. And I've had to give some of that up a little bit. I'm not coyote trapping this fall. Coyote trapping started here uh, a week ago. And uh, I did not take part in that, so that's a problem for me. So uh, I, I'm in the process of, over time, I'm going to start uh, paring down on these commitments and uh, making a little bit less uh, op- economics, a uh, little bit less cash, and uh, making a few commitments to do things that uh, hopefully I can I can make up for that loss in um, opportunity uh, with uh, with some other things that I'll be doing. So, for instance, I, I do want to do more with, with the trapping part of life, and I want to get more going on trapping today, and I want to increase the amount of income I can produce from that website and this podcast so that I can uh, spend less time on some other things. So that's just a little internal strategy, things that I'm thinking about. Um, probably doesn't mean much for listeners of the podcast, but I'm sure a lot of you have had to balance things in life like that before. And, and anytime you um, stop doing things, you, you know, uh, gigs or uh, different tasks, projects, um, side jobs, um, and, you, and you lose that income opportunity, um, you feel it. Uh, you have to make up for it somewhere else. So time, I, I've, what I've found is time is extremely valuable. And if you can find things to um, maximize the use of your time and m- maximize the output with the with a, the same amount of time input into a task or a project, um, y- you can y- you can really be a lot better off because then you can spend your time doing what you want to do. So that being said, uh, let's move on. Tomorrow, as I record this, tomorrow is the uh, opener here in Maine, in northern Maine, of the early muskrat trapping season. And I trap uh, rats right in the swamp just across uh, the road from the house here. So I'm pretty excited about that. I, I In between running around today, I, I spent a few minutes running down to the swamp and just took a look at things. I hadn't been down there for about a month, so I wasn't really sure what it was going to look like. And we have had essentially no rain for about two, three months all summer long. And we just, uh, we got a, we got two, three inches of rain here in the last couple of weeks. 
So I wasn't really sure if we, things were so dry for so long, I, I thought maybe we, we'd lost most of our muskrats. Um, I went down there and, and the water is still very low. It's come up a little bit, uh, but I did see a fair little bit of muskrat sign. So that was exciting. And uh, I, I think there's going to be enough rats there to, uh, to pick a few up. So I'm going to be there, and uh, it is uh, around a little after 9 o'clock as I record this, and I'm still debating. I was mentioning to my wife that um, I may wait, stay up till midnight, and go down and set some traps at midnight. I haven't done that in a while, and that's uh, I did that once a few years ago. And um, I just remember listening to uh, the old-timer Harry Seekins did a demo. He does a demo at Neil Olson's Trappers Weekend, and he talks about he goes out and, and sets up his coyote trap line. The guy, he must be in his 60s at least. And he's out there at midnight on the opener of coyote and fox trapping season setting traps <laughs> in the dark with his headlamp. So uh, that's that's some enthusiasm and excitement for trapping. That's pretty awesome. And you know what? I would hate to show up there right across from the house. And I know other people have trapped it in the past. And and uh, I don't begrudge other trappers. You know, it's it's uh, that happens to be public land. They can trap it if they want as well. But uh, oh, it would it would really really be frustrating to be there first thing in the morning and have see another vehicle parked there. A guy setting up on my spots. So so I may be out there at midnight. We'll see. Um, but anyway, uh, that's going to be kind of cool. I'm, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. I, I picked up some of the Hags Bracket uh, spring clips. So if you don't know much about that, I'll, I'll see if I can provide a link to those in the show notes here of the podcast. <clears throat> Hags, H-A-G-Z. That's uh, Jeff Haggerty, J3 Outdoors. And uh, he came up with these these brackets to hold traps to kind of be able to quickly mount quickly and efficiently mount your traps they're just little steel brackets and the ones I have are just a spring clip and those are they it's a just a, a piece of steel that is shaped so that you slide it right under the the spring that that where the eye is of the spring of your body grip traps and you slide this this piece of flat steel that's kind of shaped in a curve under the spring and it hooks in and it holds that up and there's a hole drilled in the center of the flat the flat side of this that is perfectly sized to fit on a 3 8 fiberglass rod you can also use rebar but 3 8 fiberglass is just about ideal so for me I've you know being a livestock farmer I've got a bunch of these fiberglass uh, 3 8 fiberglass rods that I use for electric fence and they are just perfect for sticking in the mud uh, in a muskrat swamp um, and sliding the the clip through there, hooking on your body grip trap, and, and you got an instant anchoring system there. Usually, I used to use just wooden laths, and I'll still use some of those, but, but the spring clips, um, just a one less step, you know, just a little more efficiency. You can carry a bundle of a dozen of those fiberglass rods, um, in one hand and uh, pre-attach the spring clips onto the 110 corner bears and you see a run and you just stick that shove that fiberglass post in slide your 
bracket down to where your trap's at the level you want it, and you're ready to go. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to um, set some of those up and make sure I'll do a little test run tomorrow or tonight at midnight when the season opens, and uh, I will see how they work. I'm pretty excited. And I know the muskrat prices are going to be in the tank just like every most every other species. Uh, so we'll go into that. We'll do a little fur market update. But I, you know, I, I'm trapping for Martin and Fisher bait. I'm trapping because it's close. I'm trapping because I love it. I'm going to skin these rats, uh, put up the fur, and I'm going to sell that fur. And I'm not going to get a lot of money. But if you think about it, the way, you know, every trapper needs to identify his or her priorities and d- determine uh, how much money you want to spend based on what you're going to make off the trap line and some people like I've said before are going to be completely motivated by profit some people are going to be completely motivated by the enjoyment um, they get from trapping and most people are probably going to be somewhere in the middle between those two extremes so um, you know where I sit right now uh, if I if I didn't if if I didn't get a penny for the furs from the Martin and Fisher season this fall, it, it wouldn't matter. I'm, I'm so excited about getting out there and setting out a trap line in the big woods um, and, and learning and catching fur. And, I mean, it's just the, the, the money aspect of it has, has no bearing to me right now. Now, when I'm done, I've spent a lot of money and my truck broke down and um, I got bills to pay, you know, maybe... Th- you know, a few hundred dollars fur check is gonna gonna be pretty uh, good to have, and and it'll make that all work out. But if I don't get that, and I can limp limp along and and make it back uh, the end of the trapping season, uh, I'll be just as happy. When it comes to uh, muskrat trapping, eh, maybe I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna drive 30, 40, 50 miles from the house to go trap rats right now. Um, but if I can walk down across the road from the house and I get a swamp right there and it costs me nothing but a half hour of my time every day, maybe 20 minutes of checking traps, then what the heck? I'm going to go down and get you, catch a few rats and they're easy to skin. And if I get $1.50, $2 a rat, then I'm okay with that. Get a little bit of bait for, uh, for trapping Martin and Fisher and that'll be great. So... I'm excited, and and the other thing, of course, is is just adding to the learning curve. There's always there's always something we can learn from from trapping, even uh, in the most simplest of circumstances, setting a 110 and a a run um, with a bunch of muskrat sign. So I'm excited for that. We'll get out there. And actually, I looked over at one spot where I caught a few rats last year, and and there's a rock there. It's on the edge of the water, and there was about 15 or 20 muskrat droppings, and I, that was when I, th- I was like, I was coming into it thinking, ah, I don't know if there's m- much for rats that survived with the low water, and I come in and look at that spot, and then I saw that all those droppings, and I said, yep, it's going to be all right. I'm going to get rats. <laughs> so uh, I'm excited to do that. I don't know if I'll be able to get any much for pictures or videos uh, as far as uh, ha- time constraints that I'm going to have but uh, we'll see what we can do. All right, so remember the t-shirt giveaway, leave a review, 
um, muskrat season martin boxes so we've got to use those lynx exclusion devices for martin trapping here i've mentioned that many times and i'm building more of them uh, it's going a little slowly but i i don't have hardly any money into them basically i've got a bunch of pine logs that were given to me and i am running my portable sawmill and i'm milling up boards out of those logs and using the boards to make martin boxes so i've got about 20 or so made to add to what i had last year and replace what was damaged by bears and i milled a bunch of more boards today so this week after work i'll be in the fur shed constructing more boxes and maybe skinning a muskrat or two so let's talk about the fur market um i haven't given an update on the fur market yet this fall and the reason I haven't given a fur market update is because there really is nothing to update um, this is probably no this is definitely if you talk to the people that are experienced in the fur market this is definitely the longest time period of low fur prices that anybody can remember if you talk to guys like John Epler who has been guys in the fur market for decades they will tell you that you know the prices have gone down they've gone up and down for years but they've never stayed this low for this long it's just a it's kind of an unprecedented thing so nobody really knows when there's going to be movement or what that movement is going to be uh, what we do know is there are two bright spots in the market that that will probably continue and that is coyote and bobcat so coyote is uh, is popular because uh, it's used in trim on the hoods of parkas and a lot of those are consumed by North American countries uh, <clears throat> the US and Canada and a few other countries that are not being impacted by the uh, the poor economies in Russia and China and bobcats because they're a very limited supply high-end market that uh, is is a kind of a fashionable thing that that is not worn by the bulk of the fur uh, fur producing or fur using um, fur consuming countries or or uh, individuals so those are kind of specialty items that are independent of the economic issues that are going on uh, around around the world and in in the countries like China and Russia primarily that <clears throat> consume a lot of the lower grade fur. So the the issues also stem around this low demand from Russia and China with low oil prices and a slowed economic growth as well as the high level of supply in the ranch mink industry and wild fur like it or not is oftentimes influenced by the price of ranch fur because uh, a lot of the wild fur and ranch fur gets used by uh, the same the same people who produced fur garments and um, sell it to consumers 
So when ranch mink prices are really low, the uh, price of wild fur tends to go down because why would somebody buy a $3 muskrat when they can buy a $10 ranch mink that is much larger and is a uniform color and is possibly easier to work with and has more consistency and quality. So it's very difficult for wild fur to compete with that. Um, now at these prices, ranch mink are not profitable. So mink ranchers are losing their shirts right now. And it, ranch mink is a commodity like the cattle business where there are periods of profitability and periods of uh, very um, difficult times and very low prices and money being lost and those periods can last for years and supply and demand is kind of bouncing around um, and, and the only cure for these low prices is uh, for for mink ranchers ranchers to to kind of to get out to decrease production when they decrease production they tend they do what's called pelting out where in addition to selling uh, their uh, mink they produce for fur they also sell their breeding stock so that adds more mink to the market it kind of further floods the market and prices continue to be depressed or depressed even more <clears throat> but at some point all that supply clears out and nobody's producing ranch mink because they're they're tired of losing money and they they can't lose money for any longer and they can't hold out any longer so m people stop producing supply goes way down and all of a sudden the the supply demand balance kind of gets tipped the other way and <clears throat> demand is high relative to supply and prices start to come back up and it follows that cycle as prices come up and come up and come up um, main ranchers get back in the games start producing more and the cycle continues uh, this current cycle uh, seems to indicate that we're going to see low prices continuing through about 2019-2020 before we, we really see a turnaround based on the supply and demand of the, the fur ranch fur industry. Um, I don't know how uh, how accurate those estimations are, but uh, unless we see significant changes in supply of ranch mink or demand from Russia and China, which would mean uh, increased oil prices, um, lower value of the U.S. dollar, and uh, improved economy in China. Unless we see any of those things taking place, we're probably going to continue to see depressed fur prices um, in, in the foreseeable future. So that means beaver, wild mink, muskrat are going to be low. Specialty items like Martin and Fisher will probably still do pretty well. Bobcat and Coyote will do well. Uh, Otter will be low. Um, and pretty much Raccoon will be very, very low. Um, maybe maybe $5 average on Coon. Maybe 5 to 8 on Mink. Uh, 10 to 15 on Beaver. Uh two to three dollars on muskrat maybe a little bit more than three possibly so these are going to be pretty low prices um, 
if you, if you really focused on the uh, the economics of trapping, um, the best thing probably would be to target coyote and bobcat. If you're in the western United States, that is a really good thing to be into right now. Uh, the western coyotes and the western bobcats are are far and away <clears throat> much more valuable than uh, those same species in in other parts of the country. So the the western coyotes and western bobcats both have unique fur qualities that are uh, make them the absolute top um, that the market is looking for. For bobcats, that is the combination of prime fur and the colors and the, the, the white bellies and the black spots, the very distinguishable spotted bellies. And for the coyotes, it's the, the pale color and the really thick prime fur, uh, the silkiness of the fur, <clears throat> and the consistency in color. So uh, those those are really good items to target. And, and hopefully what happened last year in a few of the auctions is there was so much demand for those coyotes and, and cats, uh, especially the coyotes. That high demand spilled over into the eastern uh, items where all of the western coyotes were bought up at really high prices, averaging... 90 to 100 dollars a piece and the buyers were still looking for coyotes and they didn't have any more westerns to bid on so they were bidding up the prices of the eastern coyotes so i believe if i remember right in one of the auctions the coyotes from the northeast which are usually around 25 dollars were bid up to 45 50 dollars so we we get some pretty good prices and and some were you know some eastern coyotes some guys from Maine got coyotes that were over averaged over a hundred dollars so there uh, there's some opportunity there so get after those um, get after those species if you uh, need to to make a few uh, payments on on your truck or something to to be able to continue to trap in other items um, all this talk about muskrat trapping in the swamp has got me thinking about W.A. Gibbs Walter Gibbs he was the legendary trapper and inventor of traps and I did a little write-up on him a while back um, I'm going to uh, read that to you probably in a future episode and kind of talk a little bit about Gibbs he was a really fascinating guy back in a time when muskrats were big 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 money and they're back when people were spending big dollars on purchasing acres of muskrat swamps, buying swampland for the purposes of being able to trap it. it pretty amazing times. So we'll go into that a little bit. I also dabbled into a little bit of fiction writing based on the the Gibbs story in that that time frame, and and um, I I wrote a story or two on on sort of a couple of fictional accounts on uh, based on that era so we'll go into that um, Neil Olson you guys familiar with uh, Neil Olson the well-known trapper from Maine he has his New England trappers weekend every year and in August um, I got a call from Neil the other day and he asked me to do a under ice beaver trapping demo at next year's New England Trappers Weekend, so I'm super excited about that. Um, it's one of those deals that, it, <clears throat> you know, years ago I probably never would have even considered that 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 was even a possibility. And I know for a fact that I'm I'm 
not all that experienced of a trapper um, I'll probably do a demo and there'll probably be uh, a dozen guys in the audience that have way more beaver trapping experience than I do um, even under ice beaver trapping experience and I'm absolutely fine with that I've been to Neil's uh, a couple times in the, uh, the last two years and I I don't actually I don't even I don't know if I ever remember in all the trapping uh, rendezvous and and get-togethers that I've been to I don't think I've seen an under ice beaver trapping demo so that to me that's just an opportunity to to bring the subject up and to have discussion with guys about it so um, talking to Neil about it I said listen I I know that I'm not really that qualified to give this demo but um, no one else is giving it and why wouldn't I say yes uh, what a great opportunity and if guys want to speak up and, and tell me where I'm wrong or help out and provide some input and suggestions and thoughts and here's how they do it that's awesome that Neil, like Neil said he he learns um, oftentimes he learns more from the people in the audience when he gives a demo than then he knows about a subject so he he feels like he learns more from them oftentimes than they learn from him so I'm really excited about that and and uh, uh, I, I I look forward to to doing more um, down there and, and working with guys I actually made a little deal with Neil we'll see if we can make it work um, <clears throat> I'll do the demo but he's got to come on the podcast and uh, <laughs> do an interview I'll, I'll probably try to do a phone interview with him uh, this winter and talk talk trapping I, I'm really excited about that and uh, he he uh, not he's not familiar with podcasts but he agreed to give it a go so so we'll give, give it a shot um, another thing is I I made a, a purchase last week and uh, I can't believe I sprung for it but I bought a bunch of old Craig O'Gorman catalogs um, if, if you're not familiar with O'Gorman, that's a, a whole podcast episode in, in itself. And uh, there's a guy, uh, Clint Locklear, I don't even think can get him get him to do an interview. So I I would never will. Um, <laughs> I'm not even, not even dreaming about that one. But he is, uh, without a question, the most successful marketer in the trapping industry. And... Probably without a question. No, without a question, the most controversial figure in the trapping industry, potentially in trapping history. So, um, extremely, extremely successful predator trapper, lure maker, and trapping overall trapping marketer uh, in Broadus, Montana, and he puts out a catalog every year. No internet, not, none of that stuff. Um, no podcast from O'Gorman. But he puts out a catalog that is a, a really awesome resource. It's a really entertaining catalog in addition to having products. Just a, a lot of cool stuff. So I, I had a couple of old catalogs. But a guy on the trap shed on Trapper Man, he advertised. I think there were 16 of them. And I, I sprung for him. I, I offered him uh, oh, 75 bucks to, to get all those shipped here. And... I mean, that's they were in really good shape, and I'm just really excited to paw through them. There's a bunch that I never saw, but the biggest, 
the biggest one was in 19, I think it was 1982-83 catalog. And that was, you know, that's a really rare catalog, especially in the condition that it's in. Um, back in the early, some of the early days of O'Gorman. And I just remember that I was at, when I was at Neil Olson's last year, I went by a booth from uh, Trapper Don, who does uh, ADC work in Connecticut, and and does uh, you know he has he has a booth, he sells trapping supplies and stuff uh, over at Neil's, and he goes to a bunch of different conventions. Actually, I, I'm going to try to get him on the podcast this winter to talk about uh, Bobcat study in uh, Connecticut um, that that he worked on. But he had an Orgorman catalog right by where he was sitting down on his table. Um, and he had all his products and stuff that he was selling. And, and I walked up and I, I looked at, I took the catalog, picked it up, and I looked at it and I said, how much for the cat, how much for this? And he looked at me and smiled. He said, not for sale. <laughs> so um, he understood the value of it and, and he, he just had it there you know, for people who were interested in taking a look and kind of seeing a little bit of that history, that's something that's really super rare. And um, I, I thought it was awesome. So he had it set there. I know it was a conversation starter, um, and, and that's probably why it was sitting there at the table. But I thought about that when I found these cat, O'Gorman catalogs up for sale, and I thought, you know what, I get a, I don't know what it's going to cost, but I get to get that, especially that old 82-83 catalog. And uh, Chapter Don, I'll probably... I'll probably bring that to uh, to Olson's this this coming year and uh, and show it to you. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, I wanted to do one uh, one more thing. I don't know if uh, oh, I don't know if we got much time for it. I guess we'll we'll do it. So, I wanted to talk about a guy named um, Robert Marshall, and the reason. Uh, I'm br- I bring him up is because Marshall is a was a um, a very well-known figure for a lot of different reasons, but the the reason that uh, pertains to us as trappers is he wrote a book called Arctic Village. Arctic Village was uh, written in the 1930s, and it. Um, subtitle of the book is A 1930s Portrait of Wiseman, Alaska. Now, this is a pretty fascinating place in a pretty fascinating time. And I read this book several times. I, I read it when I was in um, in college. I read it when I got out of college. I forgot about it for a long time. And about a year or two ago, I remembered some details from it. And I thought, what was that book again? And I, I, I started searching around, and I, I finally figured out what it was, and uh, I ordered a copy, and and I read it a third time, or a third or a fourth time. And it's just an incredible, incredible book. So um, the long and short of it is, Marshall was a guy who was born in 1901. He was a forester, and he, he did a lot of different things, but. He he was kind of trained as an en, I think an entomologist uh, and a forester. He was independently wealthy. He was from a rich family. He inherited a bunch of money. So when his father died and he kind of got rich, 
he was pretty independent. He didn't have to really do much that he didn't want to do. But he continued to work. He worked for the U.S. Forest Service. But he also self-funded a bunch of trips. And included in that was a trip up into uh, Alaska. Uh, in Into uh, Wiseman. And uh, the, this part of the Brooks Range in Alaska. He was, he was really into exploring the Brooks Range. So he was born in 1901. He actually... Uh, Marshall died in 1939. He was 38 years old. He died of a heart attack, I guess. Uh, pretty crazy. But his his big thing is he was kind of a kind of a little bit crazy. Um, he was a, a really big time socialist and um, a really huge advocate for wilderness. So you know a lot of a lot of guys, a lot of us trappers, maybe you know think about that as in a negative light. Uh, but um, I, I try to see through some of that and just think about, you know, his contribution to uh, to us through uh, the information in this book and, and other sources. And you kind of take, you know, you, you take certain things from people that you disagree with. It doesn't mean that doesn't mean they don't have valid viewpoints or they or that um, we can't uh, <clears throat> gain information and learn from them. It just means we disagree. So Marshall went to uh, to Wiseman, and he was uh, 1929. He he was kind of he was into so many different things. He was doing a study on like the growth of trees in the Arctic. He was doing regeneration after fires. A study on that. Basically, he he went to this village and he just lived there. He he rented a cabin. And it was a village of, I think it was like 100 people maybe. He rented a cabin and just kind of lived there for a, at least a year. And all he did was just study. He It, it kind of morphed into a study of the people, which kind of fascinates me. So uh, some of the most fascinating information that I've read about Alaska has come from like people who were focused on uh, learning about the people. So uh, Richard K. Nelson, I believe was his name. He was an anthropologist and he just studied people. He wrote several books. Um, I won't remember them at the moment. Um, uh, if I if I can pull them up, I'll put them in the show notes of the, the podcast. But he he was in uh, Chukyitsik, maybe I probably didn't pronounce that right. Uh, the Black River, uh, way up in the headwaters, kind of, of of the the Porcupine River, maybe. It was in the Yukon River drainage in interior Alaska. And he lived in this little village and studied the people and talked about you know all of their their habits and and he talked a lot about trapping and that. That was what fascinated me about that. I read that book in college. I think he wrote several books on on uh, native peoples and um, the anthropology. But Marshall, he did kind of the same thing. He studied the people. But in studying the people, he learned a lot. And he learned about um, the not only what they did. There, you know, there were a lot of people who were a lot of. Uh, white miners that moved 
out there to prospect for gold and never really found much of anything worth mining but uh, made just enough to survive and just absolutely loved their life and there was uh, natives that lived there and under a number of different circumstances but kind of the common theme uh, for him was how uh, it appeared how happy people were in that little village in interior Alaska where they had such a seemingly difficult life he was just fascinated with with how happy they could be and how happy they were he it was I think he I can't remember where the I'll have to see if I can find his quote but it was something like it was the the they were the happiest people that he had ever observed all right here it is he says he described the village, which was 200 miles north of Fairbanks, as the happiest civilization of which I have knowledge. Befriending a number of the area's inhabitants, he meticulously recorded thousands of hours of conversation with them. Marshall persuaded a number of villagers, most of whom were single males, to take intelligence tests. He also recorded statistics on all aspects of the villagers' lives, from their financial resources to da 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 he spent 12 and a half months from late August 1930 to early September 1931 exploring and collecting data. From this work and his previous trip to Alaska, he wrote Arctic Village, a sociological study of life in the wilderness. Published in 1933, the book was selected by the Literary Guild and became a bestseller. Marshall shared the royalties from the book with residents of Wiseman. So pretty interesting little background there, and I wanted to just read you a portion of the book because he talked <clears throat> he didn't talk in a lot of detail about the trapping aspect of it there's just so many other things around village life and the people and how they made a living and everything but he had uh, there's about oh two and a half pages or so on trapping and I thought it was pretty interesting it gives you a little picture of uh, what trapping what role trapping played in 1930s interior Alaska so I'm gonna read this um, read through this with you the story of trapping in the Koyukuk centers about snowshoe rabbits because most of the fur-bearing animals depending depend to a large extent for their food on this species of hare now the rabbits of the north are most transient creatures their numbers vary in cycles of about 10 years, so that at the crest the whole country may be overrun with rabbits, it being considered nothing to see 50 on a hillside at one time, while in the trough one may go a couple of years without seeing a single rabbit. Nobody knows for certain the cause of this amazing difference. Since the whites first came to the Koyukuk, there have been three major troughs where nowhere in the whole region could any rabbits be found. These depressions occurred in 1909 and 1910, 1918 and 1919, and 1930 and 1931, and in each case there was a parallel decimation among the fur-bearing animals. The last virtual disappearance of the fur-bearers covered the year of my visit to the Koyukuk. As a consequence, the total amount of money brought into the region from the sale of furs was only about $1,200 in contrast to 15 or 20 times that amount in peak years. Remember, this is in 1930s dollars. In the winter of 1928-29, 
when fur was at its maximum, two partners made more than $5,000 on a single winter's catch, while the year before, a lone trapper made over $3,000. Alright guys, I just typed in $3,000 in 1929 into Inflation Calculator online from Bureau of Labor Statistics. $3,000 in 1929 was the equivalent today of $44,287.54. So forty-four grand is uh, what he's saying a single trapper made um, <clears throat> during that season. Can you imagine that? Um, wouldn't that make people, a lot more people turn into trappers overnight. That's pretty amazing. If you could, if you could make $40,000 in a winter of trapping, that would be just, oh, unbelievable. Good old days. All right. Continuing on. The furs which are obtained in the Koyukuk are either sold to the store or roadhouse, or they're sent out to the Seattle Fur Exchange. In the latter case, the furs are sold at auction, the trapper receiving the full price of sale minus a 5% fee to the exchange. But when the furs are sold at one of the local trade centers, the proprietor offers the minimum price he thinks he can get away with. Last winter, the roadhouse man paid $493.50 for 13 pelts and sold them in the spring for $560. Even including a $10 fur dealer's license, this represented a 10% profit on a three months investment. Now, Marshall probably didn't like that, being a socialist at all. But <laughs> The method of trapping among both whites and Eskimos is virtually the same. It is carried out in winter, the legal trapping season, and the period when the fur is prime, practically coinciding from November 15 to March 1. Steel traps are used, sometimes with bait and sometimes merely laid along runways. Many people set scattered traps here and there in the vicinity of where they are working and attend to them incidentally. But if a person centers his winter's work on trapping, he generally sets a line of traps over a large expanse of territory. It may take him a week or more to make the rounds of these traps. He may have cabins set at convenient intervals along his trap line, but mostly he will depend for his night shelter on a tent carried on his sled. As he makes his circuit, he will stop at each trap. If nothing has disturbed it, he'll pass on. But if an animal is caught, he will kill it, if it is not dead already, and load it onto the sled. Then he'll reset the trap and continue on his rounds. At night, in his heated shelter, he will skin the animal, and after getting back to his base camp, he'll stretch the pelt on specially designed racks. The animals which are trapped in the Koyukuk include red fox, silver fox, cross fox, lynx, mink, marten, beaver, wolf, Muskrat, marmot, ground squirrel, ermine, wolverine, coyote, and otter. The last two are rare, coyote and otter. Wolverine is used entirely locally, being especially valuable for parky, I think that means parka, trimming. The muskrat, marmot, ground squirrel, and ermine are seldom, also seldom shipped outside, but are in much demand for parkies. The other pelts bringing prices ranging from $5 to almost $1,000, but no general level can be quoted because this varies so much with the size, primeness, color, and condition of the fur, and the state of the market. As a rule, the most valuable furs are those from the cross and silver foxes. 
Rabbits are chiefly snared with ordinary number three picture wire. The wire is made into a noose with the free end attached to a willow or some other substantial shrub. The rabbit, not seeing the noose, runs into it and pulls it tight. In good rabbit years, it is easy to snare 50 rabbits this way in a day, while thousands will be caught during the course of a winter. This material reduces, materially reduces the cost of living, not so much because they are excellent eating for man, but because dogs may be fed almost entirely on them. In good rabbit years, the price of feeding dogs is not half that of barren years. Ptarmigan are snared in a similar manner, and even the larger fur-bearing animals such as fox and mink may be caught with a number six wire snare. There was just one experiment in fur farming ever attempted in the Koyukuk. Two brothers started a fox ranch in 1914 at a location about 17 miles above Bettles. After 10 years, they decided that the financial returns were too negligible and the isolation too great, so they abandoned their project, which has never been resumed. So that's a little picture of 1920s, 1930s uh, life in Wiseman, Alaska. As far as trapping goes, um, that's pretty cool. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure it was quite a, quite a place to be, quite a time. So anyway, that's going to do it for tonight's episode of the Trapping Today podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, remember to leave that review to get leave that review on iTunes um, and send me an email, jrodwood at gmail.com to be entered to get that free t-shirt from Cots Brothers Lures. Uh, thanks very much. I am about two hours away from midnight. I think I'm going to go muskrat shopping tonight. Um, I look forward to it, very excited, and hope you guys are having a great time anticipating trapping season if it hasn't started already. Uh, Keep on thinking trapping, get ready for trapping, and hit the trap line. Take care, and we'll catch you on the next episode.